You are listening to Cut Jib Newsletter Speaks, the podcast. This is series number five, episode number three for Friday, October the 13th. Yeah, Friday the 13th of 2023. It's JJ Septon along with my good friend uh, and co-blogger and co-host CBD. And today we have a very special guest uh, on the program, uh, CBD, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest? Okay, folks, we have a, a, an interesting gentleman on. Um, he is a, a partner in a New York City law firm. Uh, he also um, did his master's uh, thesis on the proportionality uh, or, or proportionality in war. Um, I'd like you to welcome Ian Lane. Uh, Ian, take it away. Uh, thank you both very much for inviting me to speak on your podcast. Um, I'm very excited to discuss the subject of proportionality with you and international humanitarian law and all the other fun things like the law of armed conflict. Um, and um, I think that uh, I'm not sure where you guys want to start. Uh, do you want to start with some questions that you want me to answer? You want me to go into a general background as to what the whole thing is? Well, well obviously, uh, we, can, okay. we can start with yeah. some with some general questions. Um I mean, obviously, the, the, I mean, the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room is is proportionality as it as it applies to the Israeli response to uh, the most significant pogrom since the Holocaust. Um, mm -hmm. That obviously is the topic of the day um, at, at for our listeners who are probably well aware of what has happened in Israel. Uh, 1300 Israelis were murdered in in mostly particularly brutal ways by an invasion of of Hamas terrorists from Ga the Gaza Strip, which is quite frankly a uh, you know a 25 mile long shithole uh, between Israel and Egypt. Um, the the topic, of course, is Israel's response to what could have been an existential threat to the existence of the state of Israel. Right now, they are knocking the crap out of them from the air and using artillery. Uh, they are warning. The civilians within the within Gaza uh, to move south because Israel is coming. Uh, the question is, what can Israel do according to international law in response to this unbelievable terrorist act? Okay, so um, sounds like a very broad question. I'm going to start out, I think, with just a little bit of background about the law of armed conflict. Uh, let me preface my remarks by just saying that this is a very complicated subject in that there is a lot of information that one must know in order to make a reasonable statement about the law of armed conflict. I have, as uh, I think uh, CBD mentioned in the beginning, I do have a master's degree from Leiden University, and my master's thesis was on the subject of proportionality, and I can tell you that You'd need a PhD uh, and beyond to fully understand everything. And even those with those kinds of advanced degrees don't really understand everything. You see a lot of people speaking about proportionality uh, in the news who know absolutely nothing about it. So let me just give you some very basic uh, parts of the law of armed conflict. The law of armed conflict is something which was created to prevent unnecessary casualties and to protect civilians. That's the two most important things about the laws of armed conflict, to uh, prevent unnecessary casualties and to protect civilians. 
Now, in order to determine what is a legitimate military target, the law of armed conflict requires that you have three things. The first thing is you have to have distinction. So distinction is a separation of civilians and combatants. And the way you have distinction is uh, in traditional wars, you have armed soldiers and uniformed soldiers. These arms and uniforms distinguish the soldiers or the combatants from the civilians who are unarmed and who do not wear uniforms. Now, that's a primary step in determining who you are authorized under the laws of armed conflict to attack. You have to make the distinction between the civilians and the combatants. Now, in the case of Hamas, it is particularly difficult to make this distinction because most of the Hamas combatants uh, do not wear uniforms. They dress as civilians and they integrate themselves amongst the civilians so that the concept of distinction becomes very murky. However, that's not the fault of the defender. When a, a group of combatants uh, chooses not to distinguish themselves, they are endangering the civilian population. And that crime falls directly on them, not on the defenders. So this is something which Israel is, I think, doing its best to deal with. In fact, any military does its best to deal with the distinction portion. But it's very complicated when you have an enemy that chooses not to distinguish itself from the civilians, which is the case with Hamas. The second important aspect of the law of armed conflict is military necessity. Now, this is something which is relatively easy to distinguish from um, a battlefield. Um, so this is not something which often comes under question, although it very it's not uncommon for it to come under question when dealing with the state of Israel, because everybody seems to think that Israel has to abide by some sort of different rule. But the, the idea of military necessity is exactly what it implies. Uh, a target has to be necessary to achieve a military goal. In other words, if you uh, want to attack a, let's say, a sewage treatment plant or a elect electricity grid or something like that, you can do that provided you have uh, a legitimate military necessity to do that. The third thing, and that's, I think, what you're really calling me here to talk about, is the idea of proportionality. Um, proportionality is essentially the idea that states that no incidental loss of civilian life, which is excessive to the anticipated military necessity, is tolerable. And what that means, basically, is that when you are engaged in armed conflict, you are not allowed to exact revenge. So for example, we saw this quite often in World War II when the Germans uh, would round up 10 random citizens and shoot them uh, to punish uh, one of the citizens for attacking one of their soldiers. So this kind of rounding up non-combatants and punishing them for an act that they did not commit is not considered to be 
proportional or acceptable in the laws of armed conflict. Collective punishment is also not allowed to be um, done by um, an army uh, engaged in an armed conflict. That means basically that you cannot um, exact a punishment on a group of people, some of whom clearly did not have anything to do with the thing that you're trying to defend against. Um, a lot of people have already started speaking about collective punishment in Gaza by the Israelis turning off the water and not allowing in to the Gaza Strip anything from Israeli territory, including food and medicine. That's going to be a big issue. I think you're going to hear a lot about in the future that this is collective punishment. Um, and we can talk about that a bit later because I think it's an interesting uh, subject. Well, let's um, let's start. Let, let's start first of all with the with the idea of a uniform combatant. Um, the uh, my assumption is that uh, it, it is based on the concept of of two armies facing off. Uh, in recognizable uniforms, uh, fighting amongst themselves until the winner, uh, uh, the winner survives essentially. Um, and the difference between a, a uniformed army and Hamas terrorists is that they infiltrate, they hide, they do not wear uni uniforms. They're not fighting under the the flag of a sovereign country, um, and they are murdering uh, innocents. They are murdering civilians. They are murdering uh, children. They are mur murdering uh senior citizens they're they're simply there to murder and my question then is what does international law say about the behavior of a standing army when confronted with what is essentially uh a spy uh, a a terrorist can they uh, you know is summary execution uh legal according to international law which by the way when i say international law i'm that begs the question, what the hell is international law? I am for the moment accepting the existence and uh, um, and viability of international law in, in the in the real world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, there's there's always some debate about what international law is and where it derives its authority. Generally speaking, international law is the agreed upon law amongst a group of nations. Um, not everybody has to agree to it, but when it's generally accepted by a large number of nations, it's generally considered to be international law. Some international laws are codified. For example, the Rome Statute is codification of certain international laws that is used as a basis for the International Criminal Court, which the United States, Russia, and China, and Israel, by the way, are not members of. Um, you also have international laws that go through the United Nations, but that's not your question. Your question is, what does the law say about uh, combatants that do not distinguish themselves. Well, the law is actually relatively clear about that. Um, the law of distinction goes to the attacker. Uh, now, when I say the attacker, it can also mean the defender. The person that is pulling the trigger at a particular time must be uh, must exercise to the best of their reasonable ability at the time that they're pulling the trigger the ability to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. And by the way, international law deals only with those two categories, women, children, old people, innocents. They're all non-combatants, unless, of course, they pick up a gun and join the fight, and then they become combatants. But generally speaking, they're non-combatants. 
and um, a non-combatant civilian has the same status, no matter what their age or condition. So if a um, if an army is unable to make a distinction, if they provided they exercise all reasonable efforts to do so, then uh, international law does not or should not condemn them for um, attacking people they believe to be armed combatants. Um, this is, of course, you know, the law, the laws of war are not written to um, as a suicide pact for for certain nations. In this case, let's let's just stick with Israel, since that's what we're talking about. Israel is certainly not obligated to allow itself to be attacked because it has difficulty distinguishing between combatants and non-combatants. If Israel makes the best effort under the circumstances to distinguish, then it has every right to exercise its uh, right of self-defense against these people. Um, so if Hamas chooses not to wear uniforms and distinguish themselves from the civilians, then the real crime, the war crime, is committed by Hamas rather than by Israel, who is simply defending itself against attackers. Here is here's my um, it's not really so much a question, but it's an observation, which I guess Ian, you can, or CBD, both of you can, can respond to. Um, Hamas is, from what I understand, the de facto government, uh, an official government of, of the Gaza Strip. So Hamas has a, an army that is that are that you can consider, let's say, it's a regular army, but it's an irregular force because they're not wearing any uniforms and they're using children either as uh, human shields or, and women and whatever, or the children and women sometimes are in fact combatants themselves, as we pointed out. Uh, the other thing is that this is not necessarily a war in the conventional sense of uh, a nation state invading another nation state or going to war conventionally, like declaring war as it used to be in the old days, and then going to war. This is essentially, well, for lack of a better word, uh, what the Germans practiced in Russia, which is a war of annihilation. And it was their war aim officially at the highest levels to go in and not only you know kill kill soldiers but kill soldiers who have surrendered and then of course go on and round up civilians namely the Jews and annihilate them and this is essentially what the same thing that, that, that what Hamas is doing and so because they're stuck in the 8th century where there was no Geneva convention and there was no none of these you know accords that we're speaking of is it necessarily incumbent upon us to follow those accords when you know, when, when this is when this is happening, it is an existential threat. And as you you spoke of, Ian, the the the, the need for the 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 concept of practical military necessity, uh, I think it just dictates that anything any other consideration other than destroying your enemy has to be secondary. Uh, this was certainly a, put into practice, of course, by uh, someone such as. Uh, Air Chief Marshal Arthur Harris with the RAF during World War II. He made no qualms about area bombing Germany because if you get uh, if you get the factory and that's that's fine that, that produces the guns, great. But if you also get the you know Granny Schickelgruber who's working the assembly line, hey, that's that's she's she's an, a legitimate target as well. So um, you know these things I think are I think should be put into the calculus. I imagine, but of course well, the approbation yeah, of the world on Israel is the question. Yeah. Let me just jump in with one thing, JJ, and that is uh, Grandy Schickelbruber is probably never uh, a legitimate target. 
Um, Granny Schickelbruber, if she's killed during an attack on a legitimate target, would be considered to be collateral damage. But no, uh, no international convention would recognize the right of any state to kill an innocent civilian unless it was absolutely necessary. Now, here's where it gets complicated, because the question is whether or not it's absolutely necessary. Now, World War II, we didn't have precision guided bombs. So the argument that uh, carpet bombing cities um, was necessary was a bit stronger. Now that we have precision guided munitions, the argument for carpet bombing a city is not as strong. Um, again, it comes to the question of distinction. If you can make a distinction, you must. You must make a distinction between combatants and non-combatants. I think and if you... Excuse me, Ian. Um, you, you, I think you made a very, very important point, and something that I'd like to examine more, and that is the the idea of the the difference between a legitimate target and collateral damage. Hamas has integrated its military capacity throughout the Gaza Strip. There is no difference between a rocket factory and a, a command and control bunker, and a school and a mosque and a hospital. So. The, the what and they have done this quite intentionally they have blurred the line between a legitimate military target and uh an the an unavoidable collateral damage and and that is that is what israel is up against um in you know today and the, and the coming weeks and months and i yes. think that the and i think that unfortunately the the you know world opinion is going to fall solidly against them uh and that that is the issue that Israel is going to be dealing with uh, until they either succeed in destroying Hamas or they pull back uh, because of political and social considerations. Right. Well, you're exactly right. Um, Hamas is uh, well known for embedding its military um, equipment, command posts, etc., in civilian places like hospitals, mosques, etc. Uh, this is a war crime committed by Hamas. world doesn't seem to discuss that very much, but what it does do is it, it makes those objects, the hospital, the mosque, the school, a legitimate military target. And Israel has every right in the world, according to the laws of armed conflict and uh, international humanitarian law to attack this military target. Just the way if a five-year-old picks up a rifle and points it at a soldier, that five-year-old becomes a combatant and the soldier has the right to defend himself and shoot the five-year-old who's become a combatant by picking up a rifle. On the other hand, let's not forget that if a soldier has a rifle, throws it down and puts his hands up, he becomes, as the French would say, oh, combat, which means outside of combat, meaning a non-combatant. If somebody throw down, throws down their rifle and becomes a non-combatant, then the principles of law of protecting non-combatants apply to that person as well. So it's very, you know, it's very uh, clear that um, you can go from a combatant to a non-combatant uh, fairly quickly, and you can go from a, a distinct um, uh, target like a school, which normally shouldn't be hit, to a legitimate military target when the school becomes a, a depot for weapon storage, which um, 
I believe that it's fairly clear they're doing quite a bit of in Hamas, in uh, Gaza. So, in other words, when Hamas puts its weapons or soldiers or military equipment in uh, what would normally be a non-legitimate target, it becomes a legitimate target. And Israel has every right in the world to blow up that mosque, school, or hospital if it has and can make an argument that is militarily necessary to do so. And then, of course, you have to also apply the law of proportionality. It says that you can't blow up more than you absolutely have to, provided you have the technology to do so. So, for example, if you have a weapons depot in a garage next to a school and you have the capability of just blowing up the garage, then you have the right to blow up that garage, but you don't have the right to blow up the school. Now, if you blow up a garage that's full of weapons and the weapons cause the school to implode, that would be considered collateral damage. And that is, as tragic as it sounds, a legitimate use of military force by the Israeli army. Now, let me just tell you one more thing, uh, very briefly, and then you can question me if you'd like. And that is that MSNBC, the New York Times, the United Nations, sovereign states, Arab states or European states or North American states or South American, they don't have the uh, some sort of God-given ability to proclaim something as a war crime and for it to be true. Uh, you're going to be hearing a lot of I think you'll probably be hearing a lot of people claiming that Israel's actions are war crimes. Um, but um, as we're familiar with in the United States, uh, you have to prove that someone is guilty of a crime before they are found to be guilty of that crime. So an accusation, and I'm sure you'll hear many, many of them, is not the same thing as the finding of guilt. So I can accuse or somebody can accuse anybody of anything and the result is not that they are guilty of that thing that they've been accused of the the guilt must be adjudicated in an appropriate court and a, a finding of guilt must be made by an appropriately designated judicial body so when you start hearing uh, the newspapers or you know the bbc or whatever declaring that uh israel or any other country for that matter, is committing war crimes or is um, or is acting disproportionately. These are issues which have to be adjudicated in a court of law. And um, accusations do not equal condemn do not equal guilt. And that's something I think people have to keep in mind as we go through this, what's undoubtedly going to be a very terrible time for the people of Gaza. Unfortunately, you know, Ian, those are, you know, yes, in, in, the, in the real world or in a sane world, that is the, the way the thing should be. But as we all know, from the J6 protesters to Donald Trump to um, uh, Jack Phillips of the, uh, you know, from, from the bakery, you are guilty until you prove yourself innocent. And even if you do prove yourself innocent, you're still guilty anyway. And as I say, well, where do I go to get my you get my reputation back. But the world doesn't care about the most horrific thing since, you know, again, since World War II, that everyone has, you know, the, the, the visuals and the pictures speak for themselves um, that nobody can deny was going on. And still yet 
they're going to say Israel does not have a right to defend itself. And that's what the world means by proportionality, is that Israel should take it and shut up because they deserve it. But, you know, the question is, I'm sure the Israelis, even in this time, God bless them, are still going to try to do everything they can to try to minimize as much damage and and play by the rules, which, as we all know, uh, the the two-tiered justice system uh, writ large in this case. But, um, you know, there's nothing you have to kind of say to hell with to hell with the magazines and to hell with the media and so on and so forth. But at a certain point, if this thing grinds on any longer, as the CBD pointed out, uh, and then, of course, the, you know, the, the attention span of, of, of the uh, of, of the public, uh, which, ha- which which sometimes is that of a flea, moves on to the next outrage. They're going to forget everything that happened and just you know go back to the old uh, saw that Israel, bad, evil and Palestinians, uh, the poor victims of colonization. So that's kind of a, you know, something that I worry about as well. Yeah, well, I think you should be worried about that because I don't think that's an unrealistic scenario at all. If history is any guide. Uh, what I will say is that, um, you know, the laws of armed conflict, international humanitarian laws, the laws of war, Geneva Conventions, these are all things which have to be adjudicated. Now, unfortunately, uh, adjudication is a slow, laborious process. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but at the International Criminal Court, uh, one of the, I'm sorry, it was the International Criminal Tribunal for the ex-Yugoslavia, the ICTY. They had um, Milosevic in the dock, who was considered by many to be, uh, you know, a horrible genocidal war criminal. And he had a very robust defense, and his uh, trial took about five years. And then he had the very good sense and fortune to drop dead right before the verdict came out. So once the once he dropped dead, of course, there was no point. There was the the issue was moot, whether or not he was a war criminal. He couldn't. You can't uh, really judge a dead man. So his he was never really convicted, uh, assuming he would have been. This is one of those very painful aspects of the application of law. Uh, we pursue justice, but we don't always achieve it. That's why we have to leave true justice to the almighty creator who is responsible for mankind or, we can the, only... uh, or, or the editorial board of the new york times which is uh which <laughs> considers it at um itself at least as important as the almighty um ian yeah. I, I i would like to to return to the idea of proportionality which um i i think has been um catastrophically uh, misunderstood uh by both uh, the media and by many people who are who are otherwise um, well-meaning. Um, I think that the the media are very good at pushing the idea of proportionality in the number of deaths uh, that Israel has suffered compared to the terrorist enabling Gaza has suffered. Um, but that's not, as you have explained, that's not what proportionality means. And if proportionality actually meant that. We, we could be looking at uh, a, a, an interesting calculation. That is that there are probably about 2 billion Muslims in the world. Uh, and one can argue that it is Islam that is uh, the ultimate enemy of Israel. And there are about 15 million Jews in the world. So that ratio is about uh, 133 Muslims per Jew in the world. So uh, using, the, using the New York Times definition of proportionality, we have uh, for every Jew or Israeli murdered by the Hamas uh, maniacs, the Hamas terrorists, 
Israel is entitled to 133 deaths of Muslims. Now, of course, that's nonsense. Um, proportionality, as you've described, is something very, very different. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to make that point. No, that's a very that's an excellent point, and this is something I think that you hear a lot of in the press. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, for some reason the reporters in the press are uneducated and ignorant of the laws of war and don't understand the concepts that they're reporting on. Um, it's a huge problem when you have um, uneducated people reporting on the news uh, as if they knew what they were talking about. They obviously don't. Proportionality is not a, a, a tit-for-tat type of thing. In other words, I heard Douglas Murray um, say something when he was being interviewed the other day, uh, which I thought was very interesting on this subject. He said, uh, in relation to the British press, he said, so the British press wants us to go in and rate precisely the exact number of people that Hamas raped. They want us to go in and put a bullet in the head of precisely the number of people that were, this is obviously ridiculous. This is not proportionality in any sense of the term. It's proportionality for infants um, and ignoramuses. Proportionality is a um, assessment by military experts as to the likelihood of civilian casualty when weighed against the importance of the military target. This is an imprecise um, analysis, and it's object uh, subject to a certain amount of subjective um, evaluation. And that's why these issues have to be adjudicated in the court of law and not in the court of public opinion. Unfortunately, there's no way for us to control the court of public opinion. And um, as JJ correctly said, where do I go to get my reputation back? There is no reports. And this is one of the problems that Israel has had since its, I guess, probably since its success in 1967, in the 67 war. Um, it became seen as the uh, Goliath to the Palestinian David. And the world has, by and large, turned against it. Uh, you know, we've all seen these rallies in support of the Palestinians in the cities of uh, the United States and in other countries and the rallies on our most illustrious college campuses for the Palestinians and people chanting to kill the Jews. I mean, this is really shocking that you have supposedly intelligent people arguing to kill the Jews. I mean, this is really shocking. Well, you, you know, I think that, that that points out. I'm sorry, Ian. That points out the the hypocrisy or the 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 insanity of, on the one hand, the defense is well. When we say we're anti-Zionist, it doesn't mean we're anti-Semitic. And yet here they go. It's like you know, kill all the Jews. And in France today, in fact, because of this uh, supposed day of solidarity, I think two two Jewish people were were knifed to death in uh, the city of Arras. I don't know what, what's going on elsewhere in the world, but you know, it, it's nuts. Either either look. We all know we we know that to be anti-Zionist is to be anti-Semitic. But when they say, "Well, we're not," you know, the, the separation of that is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Just as on the one hand, you always hear them saying, you know, they the like like Mahmoud Abbas is a world famous Holocaust denier, and yet on the, and in the very next breath, he goes, "Unfortunately, Hitler didn't go too far the first time around. Didn't go far enough the first time around." 
So which is it? You know, do you want to kill the Jews or is it just an Israel thing? Or what is it in the first place? It's the madness of this whole thing that it's hard to get to wrap one's head around. And because it's swirling and swirling and constantly in your face by so many people and from so many quarters and from people who should know better, it uh, it, it, it doesn't, it, it just, you, you just sort of, you know, you just have to catch your breath. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I think that, you know, people who claim the criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic are ridiculous. I have immense criticisms of Israel. Um, I think my criticisms of Israel would be different from a New York University professor's criticisms of Israel, but we both have criticisms, and that doesn't make you anti-Semitic. What makes you anti-Semitic is when you hold Israel as the sole Jewish state in the world to a different standard than you hold to every other place in the world. Um, if you believe, for example, that killing babies is wrong when it's done to Palestinian children, and you don't believe that killing babies is wrong when it's done to Israeli children, that's hypocrisy. Um, there's no way to deal with that. That's just the way some people feel about certain things. And you're not going to change their mind with facts, logic, or reason because their position isn't factual, logical, or reasonable. Um, so this, this is what we have to deal with, the fact that uh, many people are just emotionally reacting to what's going on in Israel, and um, their reaction is going to remain that way. Now, that's fine for an individual. I mean, you certainly have every right in the world to have your own opinion about any subject. Where I think there's a big problem is where that, where opinion becomes, um, is presented as facts. So, for example, when the BBC or CNN or MSNBC say Israel is committing war crimes, that's a big problem. That's that goes beyond the remit of that media organization. They are there to report the news and if they wish to give opinions about the news, but they're not permitted to come to, uh, to make factual statements that are simply not true. Israel cannot be determined to have committed any war crimes or any other country for that matter, the United States, Russia, they, they can't be determined to have committed war crimes until those war crimes, those actions are adjudicated and found to be war crimes. Now, it may seem very obvious that shooting a bunch of children in uh, a nursery uh, and then burning it down is a war crime. And that's true. That's not a very difficult thing to adjudicate. But nevertheless, uh, it must be adjudicated in order for it to have the imprimor of a war crime. Um, you can say that, you know, in my opinion, shooting a bunch of children in the head in a nursery is a war crime. That's true, and that's your opinion. But you can't say it is a war crime until it's adjudicated as a war crime. And this is where the problem comes in. Let, let me ask Let me ask you just one, and let's see if you jump in, but just here's a, a hypothetical, and I'm, you guys are probably, or somebody's going to, you know, I, I'm not promoting anything like this, but in light of the fact that MSNBC and the BBC and the New York Times are literally, you know, spreading propagandistic lies during a time of war, could they be seen as aiding and abetting an enemy of the state of Israel and thereby make themselves a legitimate military target? And that's purely a hypothetical and I'm not promoting it. 
you mean could Israel consider them to be a legitimate military target? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question, and I would say that um, there there is an argument that could be made that they would be considered to be uh, could be considered to be a legitimate military target. But then we have to go into the idea of uh, proportionality. Uh, well, first of all, they're they're not necessarily combatants because they they're not you know uh, raising arms against Israel, so. An argument would be made that they're non-combatants and therefore they are out of the range of legitimate targets. But um, assuming that they were, then you would have to go into whether or not there's a military necessity to eliminate this propaganda and then whether or not doing it would be proportional. Um, I well, think it's but, but then 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 you get into a, a very difficult philosophical discussion about exactly what a legitimate military target is uh, was adolf hitler never fired a shot in world war ii you know from 1933 until 1945 he sat in his in his office uh and and directed a a, a catastrophe against the the jewish people uh, but he never fired a shot is he a legitimate military target of course he is um is the is the clerk who who makes sure that the that the trains uh, ran on time uh, into Auschwitz. Was he a legitimate military target? In spite of the fact that he never raised, uh, he never raised a gun. He never, he never hurt anybody really. And then, and the answer is obviously he is a legitimate military target. So it, um, you know, uh, or Tokyo Rose or Baghdad Bob. These are people who are part, who are intimately involved in the war making process, in the in the terrorism uh, that has been perpetrated on Israel for. For 50 or 60 years so i think it's very very difficult to to draw that clear line um i think that uh, at some point we have to say well yes international law does not speak to this perfectly and it would take five years of of the international criminal court to decide whether or not this these people are guilty of war crimes but you know, the man on the street would say, yeah, I think I think that's that's reasonable to to put a, a missile through the window of that clerk um, or, you know, kill kill the journalist who is is essentially uh, supporting terrorism. Well, you know, it yep. just it just it points to, to the fact that the world has changed since obviously since World War Two, where it's not, you know, distinct military lines where it's one side and the other, plus the the. The sphere of mass communication and instantaneous mass communication and so on and so forth. And the fact that we are all intermingled in such a an instantaneous and, and very, very blurred way like none before. So uh, to, to CBD's point of Tokyo Rosie, she was put on trial as a war criminal and convicted, although she was imprisoned. But someone like a Lord, Lord Haw Haw, a man who went by the name was William Joyce, was executed by the British for, for aiding and abetting. Uh, Nazi Germany. Same with, I think, Axis Sally. I forgot her real name. I think she was also imprisoned. But again, someone like a who would, I, I'm trying to think of the most execrable, you know, example that would be on MSNBC or someone like a Christiane Amanpour or whoever. You know, is it uh, could the could the Mossad go over to England and you know whatever offer or whatever? Uh, these are you know because the lines of everything has blurred so much since 1945 that. What is a battlefront? What is a combatant? What is a non-combatant? And who is and who is not aiding and abetting in an enemy? Not necessarily in the strictest uh, military sense, of course. You know, if 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 someone from the BBC were to get uh, 
you know, his car blown up or something like that, who was a Palestine, you know, uh, a supporter, uh, the British would go insane against the state of Israel. So all of these things are, you know, it's it's the only reason why I raised the question. It's just it's it's intriguing because of the way the world is. Either. Yeah, well, it's very intriguing. And I will tell you that um, in the legal system that we have, um, there are what we call cases of first impression where uh, a court is asked to make a decision on a case that hasn't come up before. Um, and um, I'm not familiar with any adjudications or any, you know, uh, legal processes involving the assassination of, uh, for example, correspondents, war correspondents who are broadcasting to certain people propaganda, which the one side feels is um, detrimental to its defense. But I would be very curious to see what uh, the, you know, the international criminal court would say about something like that. Um, this, you know, we don't have the answers to a lot of these questions. They're simply um, debates at this point, as um, CBD says, philosophical debates. Uh, there is no answer to that. However, if it happens and it's adjudicated, then we'll have an answer. Uh, a court will probably come down and say, under these circumstances, it's allowed. And under these circumstances, it's not allowed. Um, and that might be helpful to, you know, future conflicts. Although I doubt it, because generally speaking, people that engage in these kinds of conflicts don't give much thought to the um, way their actions will be evaluated in the future. I think that's fairly clear with the armed conflicts we see going on in the world today. There seems to be a lot of what um, lay people would call war crimes being committed uh, without any adjudication at this point. But I will tell you that there are NGOs that are in battle uh, zones that are collecting information to be used in later war crimes prosecutions. Now, whether or not they'll be successful in those war crimes prosecutions, I don't know. I think there's a lot of sympathy, for example, to the um, allegations of war crimes in the war of Russia against Ukraine. Uh, and I think that there are several NGOs that are working in the arena to gather information for later prosecutions. And I'm quite certain there will be several NGOs in the uh, Gaza area to collect information and try to present it as war crimes that are committed by Israel against the Palestinians in Gaza. Well, um, thank, thank you very much for making that distinction, because of, Ian, because, of course, those NGOs are collecting information and data to uh, – to pillory Israel on the world stage, and the idea that Hamas is going to be taken before the the one of the international courts is is a, a quaint and naive idea. Um, anyway, I thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's highly unlikely that Hamas would be brought before an international tribunal. The world doesn't seem to have the appetite to prosecute that kind of war crimes in international fora. Well, that also that that raises the, you know, the, the stakes, if you will, for Israel to say, well, look, if this is, if the world is against us and we can never ever get a fair shake, then 
you know, why are we doing this? Why are we allowing ourselves to be annihilated like this? Because if we let Hamas off the hook this time, regardless of how we wage the war, you know, proportionality or not, and probably they they will do that, uh, they're going to come back again and just do the same thing and, and really wipe us out. So in a way, Israel being mistreated all these years and decades has put them into a position where they're going to probably have to do the very thing that the world has been accusing them of doing for the last, you know, since their uh, since their founding 75 years ago. And that's the bitter irony of this whole thing. And I got to say, I can't necessarily fault Israel for, you know, not necessarily prioritizing the safety of non-combatants and going for practical military necessity and wiping out your enemy regardless of what's going on. And then, of course, uh, the, 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 the screams and the, as we say, the geshrai that comes up from the from from the heathens at the UN and elsewhere is going to be something to behold. Yes, I'm sure you're right. Um, you know, there is a saying, a, a Jewish saying, that um, if you are kind when you should be cruel, then you will eventually be cruel when you should be kind. And I think that this is applicable to the situation in Israel because I think for the last probably. 70 years since Israel was founded, they have tried their very best to be kind. And that has, I think, as this recent Gaza incursion has shown, has not served them well. And I think that uh, now they are going to be cruel. And I think that they are going to say it is necessary. And I think there's a very strong argument that can be made that is necessary. I believe that they will argue that they will they are faced with an existential threat. Um, I think this is a reasonable argument to make. And when you are faced with an existential threat, there are very high limits to what is considered to be legitimate defense. This is why the United States of America, Russia, China, I guess North Korea now, uh, have nuclear weapons. Because if the threat to the country becomes high enough, it can be legitimate to use nuclear weapons. In fact, very interestingly, and I can recommend everybody who has some time to Google it, there was an advisory opinion issued by the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, which is also located in The Hague, as to the legitimacy of the use of nuclear weapons. And... Um, as I recall, the uh, ICJ found that there were circumstances where the use of nuclear weapons was legitimate. And those circumstances were when a country is faced with an existential threat and the use of nuclear weapons could ameliorate that threat. Um, I think that uh, Israel is faced now with an existential threat. That's my opinion. That's uh, for whatever that's worth. I mean, others will certainly disagree with me, but... I think a strong argument could be made that they are faced with an existential threat and therefore the limits to their response are very broad. And I think that this is the argument that Israel will be making uh, as they move into Gaza and as the international press starts uh, trying to undermine the legitimacy of the operation. Yeah, then you see, there's there's the whole rub is that uh, when a country is faced with an existential threat, of course, the enemies of Israel will say, 
you're wrong. You never, you don't face an existential threat. Who are you to decide whether you face an existential threat or not? So you, you're not allowed to do, you know, you're not allowed to fight back. You're not allowed to use nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, as the hordes are rolling in from the north, the east, and the, the east and the south, if not from from the Mediterranean itself. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm actually kind of surprised that the that the that that the, the Hague actually came up with that decision. I mean, the the you know the the absolute terror of of the so-called civilized world that America dropped two atomic bombs to end to end World War II is you know that's you know, is is infamous as we all know. So kind of surprising that the Hague came to that decision. It's interesting yes, though but- that when you you talk about an existential threat, um, I I can absolutely argue and I will be correct that the United States of America was not facing an existential threat in August of 1945. What they were facing. Um, was the loss of of millions and millions of Japanese citizens and the loss of, uh, you know, depending on, on who you listen to, uh, maybe a million casualties among the United States Armed Forces. So the dropping of two atomic bombs was perhaps the greatest humanitarian act in the history of the world. They saved millions and millions of people. Uh, one, you know, two days of brutality in two Japanese cities saved millions of people and that and 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 that speaks to what Ian was talking about if if you are you know the 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 juxtaposition between cruelness or cruelty and kindness and Israel has been too kind and now they have to be perhaps too cruel but in the long run it is to save lives and let's be honest the the destruction of Hamas uh, will also mean the destruction of thousands and thousands of uh, supposedly innocent Palestinians who are simply going about their lives in in Gaza. Uh, I'll argue the point that they are not, in fact, innocents. But in the long run, it will probably save them. It will probably save more of their lives. Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, people always ask me if I'm uh, pro-Palestinian. And I say, I'm very pro-Palestinian. I believe the Palestinians have every right in the world to live in a peaceful and uh, undisturbed manner and to make the best of their lives that they possibly can, just like everybody else in the world. Um, But I am not pro-Hamas. I am not pro any organization that chooses to abuse their people for the purposes of waging war against somebody else. I was, I guess... Shocked isn't the right word. I was I was a little bit surprised to hear that the uh, Hamas rulers of Gaza had dug up water pipe that was provided to them by the international community to improve the lives of its people to use for these Qassam rockets, to use as hulls for these Qassam rockets, that they would deprive their people of something as essential as water so that they could make these rockets to kill Jews in Israel. I, I think that, you know, a, a, quote, ruling class, unquote, of people like that have no place in the world. And um, I think it's very tragic that these are the people that are ruling over the people of Gaza. But these are the people that Gaza, the Gazans elected to rule over them. So, but the, but the world community has accepted them. And in fact, uh, you know, the leader of Hamas uh, lives in Qatar, uh, apparently in, in great luxury. Uh, and Qatar is a member of Interpol. So why he has not been arrested, I have no idea. 
but this is this is the profound disconnect between the the granting of humanity by the world to everyone else except for Israel. They accept the enemies of Israel and they protect them. And you know the, the idea that the UN and the EU and 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 sometimes the United States sends hundreds of millions of dollars, perhaps billions of dollars to to Gaza for supposedly humanitarian purposes, and it is immediately repurposed uh, to kill Jews, um, is simply ignored. They know it's happening. They've known it's happening for years and years and years, and they accept it. So your surprise is because you are a human being, um, but uh, it, it should not be surprising. Well, yeah, basically, you know, yeah, yeah, these people, I mean, essentially, and I, and I hate to say it, it's, you know, it, they're cannon fodder. That's all they are. They're, to one extent, they're political cannon fodder, and they've been political cannon fodder and, and serve the purpose not only of the Palestinian or the Hamas leadership, but of the leadership of basically all the Arab states uh, since the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. They don't want the Palestinians. Nobody wants them, but they're a useful tool to use both to beat up on Israel and, and also to get the Russians and the Americans over over a barrel, pun intended. Um, but the, the, the bitter irony of, of, of this is that, first of all, you know, they elected them, but they you only have to elect them once because, believe me, they're going to be there for life. There will be no more elections after that, as we, yes. as we move all too well from many places all over the world. But the yeah. bitter irony is CBD and I discussed on the last podcast is that the Palestinian people, if they would only just leave the damn Jews alone and live their lives there, whether in their own place, whether it's Gaza or the West Bank or as Israeli Arabs, their lives are materially better by far than any other Muslim or any other Palestinian in any other uh, Arab nation around the world. It's just it's so ironic. And yet they're they're engaged in this you know, medieval barbarism because they can't you know, they, they don't care. They would rather. Their, their own people starve if it means fulfilling some crazy prophecy of wiping out all the Jews of the world. So that's that's what we're up against, you know. So take that to your criminal court. Oh, God. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's pretty clear that the leadership of the Palestinian people has been as bad as could possibly be from the very beginning. Um, I think it's... Uh, terribly tragic that they have inculcated in the Palestinian people a desire to eliminate Israel and Jews. I think that uh, you're naive if you think they only want to eliminate Israel. They just want to start with Israel because it happens to be there. And Christians, I think that the there's a certain, a very big uh, feeling in the uh, Islamic community that Israel is an interloper in what should be an Islamic Middle East, and therefore it has to be removed uh, in any way possible. Um, and in order to do this, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I heard an interview of, uh, uh, which was translated into English uh, by memory on, I think it was Jordanian TV, of a, apparently a very wealthy businessman who was saying the Palestinians are uh, love death while the Israelis love life. Uh, we've all heard that before. That's nothing new. But he said, Palestinian women have six children, three of whom are given to the cause. And the cause meaning the destruction of the state of Israel and the elimination of Jews from the Middle East. Um, I believe that that's how a significant number of people feel. And I think that that's a big problem. 
I also believe that there's a significant number of people that don't want to do that, that they want nothing more than to live in peace and to have a, um, a life where they can, you know, enjoy their children and enjoy their uh, freedoms and enjoy their prosperity. Uh, and that has been taken away. That prospect has been taken away from them by a, a single-minded leadership, which doesn't care about the people. It only cares about the idea. And I, is... I would accept, Ian. I would accept that um, as reality if it were not uh, evident that throughout the world there are huge Muslim uh, communities. I mean, absolutely throughout the world that are gleefully cheering on the Hamas attacks on Israel. That they are gleefully cheering on this latest pogrom. Um, and I think that at some point the world and certainly Jews and Israel have to admit that it is the it is structural it is built into Islam that the destruction of of world Jewry is important because I you know I've heard this over and over again first the Saturday people and then the Sunday people what that means is that that Islam is going to destroy the Jews first but then the Christians next the yeah. Jews you know are, are an easier target but the Christians come next yeah, you, I'm just uh, just to interject. You know, we were talking about Israel and Hamas and the Jews, and uh, Ian brought up, uh, you know, the, the, the persecution of Christians around the world, especially in places like in Nigeria, and and so on and so forth. And right now, there is uh, a potential for a, a, a of another Armenian genocide, courtesy of the Azerbaijanis, and that's getting you know completely ignored, obviously because of what's going on in Israel, but of course of other things that are going on around the world with Ukraine and Russia and China and so on and so forth. So. Again, it's just another battlefront of, of global Islam to, to wipe out uh, the infidels and, and to take over the world. And while I do believe, and I think Ian is correct, there, there are people who don't follow this to the letter, despite what the, you know, the teachings are. But, you know, I'm trying to say, well, where are, the, where are these so-called moderate Muslims around the world in the mosques all over, you know, not just in the Middle East, but in Europe and in America and, and Canada and in South America and Asia? Where are they to stand up and say, look, whatever our conflicts are with Israel, there is no excuse for what's going on. And so far, I haven't seen an Islamic leader in any country step forward and, you know, say, look, whatever our problems are, this is condemned. Nobody has condemned it, at least from their quarters, to my knowledge. If somebody knows of something, please correct me, because I will uh, I'll be happy to hear that. Well, uh, all I can say about that is that, um, you know, there are several Muslim Arabs, Joseph Haddad comes to mind as one who writes, sure. uh, um, who I see on Twitter quite a bit, who are very pro-Israel and who, uh, you know, you've got the Christian Druze in Israel who are Arabs also, who are big Israel supporters. They're out there. It's just that when they get to be too prominent, uh, their lives are, are in danger. Uh, look at what happened to Salman Rushdie. And he's, uh, as far as I know, a believing and mildly practicing Muslim. Uh, he said something that the fanatical people didn't like, and he's had a death sentence on his head ever since. So this is, you know, it takes a huge amount of courage to step forward and say something against your co-religionists when you're Muslim, uh, because that's considered by many of them to be blasphemy, I suppose. I don't want to speak for all the Muslims, but... This is what appears to me from an, from the outside. 
And so, you know, it's difficult to be courageous. There are some, for sure. Um, I've had many conversations with people that are rational, reasonable, and um, sympathetic to the Israel. But um, there are also many that aren't. I'd say the vast majority aren't. So yeah. sad. That's problematic. Yeah. Gentlemen, any uh, any further thoughts? Uh, final comments, parting thoughts on on the subject, or or whatever you want to talk about. CBD, I guess not. Yeah, CBD? yeah, I'm 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 having my uh, technology moment. I I forgot to unmute myself. I would like to point <laughs> out that uh, Ian is my oldest and dearest friend, and I have spent um, all of my adult life and uh, much of my adolescent life trying to draw him out into intemperate things. And I have failed. Um, I'm, I'm uh, quite old, and uh, I can count the number of times that I have succeeded in drawing him out into uh, intemperate words uh, on the probably finger of one hand. And, uh, I, and once again, I failed today. But uh, anyway, Ian, thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, your your description of of international law is fascinating um it's unfortunately not going to be applied equally to israel and hamas uh, which is which is really the, the 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 issue of the day and that is that israel is is being judged according to a higher and unachievable standard and hamas is being judged by no standard at all other than hey it's okay that uh, they're killing jews right well let me just um, conclude by saying one thing that I wanted to say, and that is that, um, in my opinion, uh, the failure of the international community to equally apply international law to organizations such as Hamas, Hezbollah, and ISIS, and several others, undermines tremendously the legitimacy of international law in the eyes of many people. And I think that if the international law community wishes to truly pursue a world which is ruled by international laws that are accepted by everybody, they must be equally administered. And I agree, unfortunately, CBD, that it's probably not going to be the case in this conflict either. Ian, uh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you and talking with you. And uh, you know, I think for an entire hour, CBD and I have gone uh, speaking of corrupting you without without profanities, so this is pretty. Uh, oh shit! Thing. I forgot to curse. You mother. Anyway, <laughs> my, my 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 parting thought is that the tragedy is in in the way, you know, we we've talked about this over the last many podcasts about you know the the state of corruption of 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 the of America, which is supposed to be you know the shining example of. Uh, of Western civilization or the apex of it over the last however many thousand years of development. And that corruption extends to Western civilization and Western institutions uh, in general, uh, be they the culture, the media, governments, international bodies, as is exemplified in its treatment of the state of Israel, probably the most one of the most advanced Western cultures, certainly for sure in the Middle East, and if not in the world, and how they are treating them uh, in the most shameful and horrible way, and yet excusing the barbarity of uh, of the of the medieval muck that we wrote, we we strove so hard over thousands of years to rise above, only to sink back into it. And that is a tragedy and an irony. And I hope that you know that uh, 
more intelligent heads will prevail. Perhaps the sight of uh, decapitated children and, uh, you know, burning bodies alive and so on and so forth. And a, a redux of, uh, of the Einsatzgruppen one more time will hopefully shock some of the world, if not all of the world, into perhaps considering that, that, uh, that, that they were wrong in, in their beliefs about Israel and other things. But, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see on that. But in any case, for Ian Lane and for CBD, it's JJ Sefkin. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you so much for your generosity in hitting the tip jar. Uh, keep the cards and letters coming, and we'll see you again on the next one. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, folks.